welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. On this fourth Sunday of Advent, we lit four candles. And thank you to the Turner family for, for leading us in that lovely presentation. Now, the, the fifth candle, which we call the Christ candle, uh, is typically lit on Christmas Day. We will not be together on Christmas Day, so we'll do it on Christmas Eve. We'll be lighting one all together in our respective locations. You know, on, on the Advent wreath, the, the Advent candles, as, as each candle is lit in succession, you realize that the brightness increases, obviously. <clears throat> now, if we were lighting those candles in a dark room, the, the change would be very clear to us as each flame added to the light. There's a, a, a movement with that. There's a, a progression in the lighting of those candles week after week. Now, the themes of expectation, hope, and joy, symbolized in our candles, are now gathered together in this Advent season in the theme of fulfillment. And in the shared thinking of the people of God, fulfillment has also been marked by progression, a movement that invests itself in something bigger than the people who long for the fulfillment. Now, I know that progressive is mostly a word that's looked at as a political descriptor these days, but it actually applies to many facets of life. We progress from childhood to adulthood. We progress from an entry-level position in our job to a management role, perhaps. Or, or a driver progresses on a road trip from L.A. to Kansas City or wherever, and does so one mile at a time. We progress in all kinds of ways. Not all progressions are good, of course, nor are they always for the better, but, but the movement is still there. To progress is to move in a particular direction. And the destination could be a good one or a not so good one. But when using the term, we always have to ask, what are we progressing from? And what are we progressing to? And by what force or power are we progressing? The ancient Hebrew people progressed throughout their history as they pinned their hopes on a number of people and a number of things. When the people were enslaved in Egypt, they cried out to God to rescue them, and they ended up pinning their hopes on Moses, which is okay in a sense because God did send him to lead the people. And when the people became a nation, when they had their own place and land, they pinned their hopes on prophets and judges and priests and finally on kings. These leaders all represented something bigger than the people themselves. And the people typically looked to them for, for power and safety and rescue. Even though the, the prophets and the psalmists we read in Scripture called the people to hope in God, hope was often transferred to human leaders, especially to kings. Now, the problem, of course, was a very human one. Not only were kings subject to corruption, but they all ended up dying, as all people do. Sorry for that bad news this morning. So the progression of hope moved from individual kings to the office of the king, the monarchy, 
a, a royal family that's made up of a, of a whole long line of related rulers. So as long as the monarchy was intact, Israel was intact, or so the thinking went. We see this echoed in our psalm this morning as the psalmist reminds God of his covenant to Israel. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant David, I will establish your descendants forever and build your throne for all generations. Then you spoke in a vision to your faithful one and said, I have set the crown on one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. My hand shall always remain with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. God's hand would remain with David, not because he would live forever, but because there would be, it was assumed, a line of kings, a lineage that would keep the monarchy alive and well. And of course, again, if the monarchy was in good shape, then everybody thought that Israel would be in good shape. But after generations of war and corruption, the monarchy didn't survive. And Israel became a kind of vassal state under the control of all these different foreign nations. But hope didn't quite die. If there was no king, if there was no monarchy, then someone else would have to rise up to vindicate Israel. And the people would begin to hope for one anointed by God, one chosen by God, a Messiah, who would bring that vindication. Now, for some, this Messiah would be a descendant of King David. For others, this rescuer would be a heavenly being, as described in the book of Daniel, a, a son of man. Either way, people looked ahead toward a time of fulfillment, when all their hopes would be realized in the person of a liberator, a rescuer, a Messiah. So the people progressed from hoping in a national leader to hoping in the continuation of the monarchy to hoping in a new kind of national leader. And the force that moved the expectations of many people was the desire that Israel would return to its former glory. When the angel Gabriel visits Mary and tells her about what God is doing, he uses familiar language about the throne of David, Israel's monarchy, and the ongoing nature of that throne. But even young Mary would know that the throne of David had been toppled and hadn't lasted forever. And yet, Gabriel makes the claim that Mary will become pregnant, she'll give birth to a son, and the throne he will inhabit will indeed last forever. And Mary, understandably, asks, in a very asks him a very reasonable question. How can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, Mary doesn't contradict Gabriel. She doesn't tell him that he's a crazy kind of an angel. She just wants to know about the process. People of that ancient world didn't know about DNA or genetics or anything like that like we do today, but they certainly knew where babies came from. Mary's question may actually have had two sides to it. There's the very obvious side, which is, how does conception take place when there has been no sexual activity? But there's another one too. If the child is to be of the line of David, then 
her fiancé Joseph would be a likely candidate as the father, since the lineage in those, those days was typically traced through the father. But given their chaste relationship, how then does the child become properly identified with the house of David? And Gabriel explains that the conception will be the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the very Spirit of God. You know, there's an ongoing theme in the Bible. While God does his work in the world through people, it is God who is the initiator and the source of that work. You know, people can get up to all kinds of shenanigans on their own, thinking that they are progressing towards something good or, or towards something better or sometimes just something that they prefer. But when God initiates, the progression is always toward his ultimate intentions and purposes. From the very beginning, God has intended to enact his redeeming, rescuing work through a people called Israel, the people of God. When God sends Moses to confront the Egyptian Pharaoh and demands the release of the enslaved Hebrew people, God tells Moses to explain to the Pharaoh that Israel is God's firstborn son. God saw the Hebrew people as his own, as a people descended from Abraham, a people whose destiny it was to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Throughout their checkered history, God raised up prophets to call the people back to that identity. God has always worked through people to bring about his purposes, done so at his initiation. And now he works through a young woman who will carry the child who will be in himself all that Israel was intended to be. God, who has initiated this process of conception, will be the true father just as he is the father of all of Israel, including David and David's royal line. And the story of the pregnancy predictably will be scandalous and, and the birth will take place in a manger and there will be infanticide, there will be escape, return, and years of simply blending into life in a peasant village. This appears to be how God works. You know, in scripture, God seems to avoid the spectacular for the most part. It's true that spectacular things do happen in the Bible once in a while, but most of what God does is enacted by people who seem to fly under the radar of the rest of the world. You know, things would be a whole lot easier if God would just flip a switch and show himself to everyone in the world all at once, regardless of time zones. But God doesn't do that kind of thing or, or so the Bible seems to indicate, and our shared experience seems to validate that. You know, all over the world, we see people fighting for seats at the tables of power. This is nothing new, really. That kind of drama has been around, it seems, forever. Families and, and tribes and people groups and nations have always been in the business of trying to topple their competitors and the ones who win are usually the ones with the most power and might. But the Gospels offer to us a counter-narrative to the stories that insist on power and might, whether demonstrated in politics, military actions, 
riotous revolution or superstar influence. We see in the story of Jesus' birth a story that is shadowed by those kinds of powerful forces, but emerging in weakness and vulnerability. Mary's social and economic status was precarious at best. As an infant, Jesus was at his most vulnerable, as all newborns are. The the desperate acts of people like King Herod made life for Jesus and his parents even more fragile than it already was. When Gabriel came to Mary to announce the role that she would play in God's purposes, all the seats at the tables of power in the world were already taken, with plenty of people waiting in the wings to play musical chairs if there was a seat vacated. There was no chair reserved there for Jesus, because what awaited him was a throne, where he would serve as a king like no other. He would be a king born in weakness, living in poverty, suffering helplessly and dying brutally. But he would rise as king nonetheless, and through him, God would be reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You know, the season that we are in right now truly is one of fragility and weakness, isn't it? We've had to come to grips with the reality that the world can be a very dangerous place, that it is actually a very dangerous place. The the pandemic has proved this to us. We recognize that economic strength and stability is not guaranteed to us, and it can be upended in the blink of an eye. It's been said that most people in the United States are always about three months away from bankruptcy, and it's taken the entire world only nine months to get there. And so here we are in an Advent season that just might help us to appreciate the insecure and perilous state of all that surrounded Jesus at the coming of his birth. You know, this year our major scenes maybe should include action figures, you know, like Darth Vader and T-Rexes to symbolize the dangerous context of Jesus' birth and also to remind us that God has come to us in the midst of our broken and violent and disease-prone world. Now, if you're a kid watching this, one of our Vine kids, and um, you probably shouldn't take me seriously and really put those kinds of action figures in your parents' nativity scenes. But if you do, just blame me and maybe things will go better for you. Well, uh, an election season is always a good time to stop and reflect on how people in our time rest their hopes and dreams on people who hold power. Here in the United States, we don't have kings who hold absolute power, but sometimes we act like we do. We who call ourselves followers of Jesus might expect our governmental leaders to be honest and do their jobs, but we also have to recognize their limitations and their weaknesses. Otherwise, we invest in them more than they deserve, just as Israel invested too much in their own kings. Our hopes are focused on the God who comes to us in vulnerability and helplessness, as a newborn infant dependent on his young mother for his life and health. God, in the person of Jesus, comes to the world as it really is, not on how he intends it to be. 
God's intentions are progressing us toward his intended future when all will be made right. But in the here and now, he comes to us in our dangerous, violent, and fragile state. And in this broken world, he summons people, not by overwhelming and inescapable power, but by calling, by drawing, by wooing. Even the announcement by angels of the birth of Jesus missed the notice of the powerful of the world. It was traveling astrologers and shepherds who responded to the good news, the the people who lacked power and position in that context. Think about it for a minute. All true power lies with God. And yet, he comes to us in the birth of Jesus in weakness. And yes, the child Jesus would turn out to be Israel's long-awaited Messiah, but one very different from what Israel expected. The power that Jesus would unleash would be the power of forgiveness from sin, the, the power to refrain from sin, the power for people to enter into the present reality of God's kingdom, a kingdom appearing as sign and wonder, a kingdom that's present but yet to be fulfilled. And even in awaiting ultimate fulfillment, life in this kingdom of God brings a deep sense of contentment, the kind that says we are exactly where we are supposed to be. Young Mary gives the impression in that moment in time that as she stood face to face with the angel Gabriel, that she knew she was exactly where she was supposed to be. It would be a fearsome thing, facing off with a a non-human celestial being like an angel. We're told that Mary was perplexed, that she was confused by his greeting. Well, Gabriel must have figured that this young girl was more than just perplexed because his next words are, do not be afraid, which is the most common admonition of the Bible. Now, he wouldn't have had to say that if he didn't think Mary might be afraid. Gabriel's words are not about fearing the dangers of the world. They're about fearing what God is doing. And I think that's a good word for us today. There are many things surrounding us that can spark fear. But as we seek to center ourselves in God, are we fearing that God is failing to act or that He somehow is unable to do anything? If God is absent from the scene, then there's plenty of reason to be afraid. But God is not absent. And today, we are drawn again into the story of God's presence in the world in the the child Jesus. A child that comes into our dangerous world as one weak and vulnerable. And in that very human frailty, he inaugurates a kingdom that has no end, a kingdom in which we live even as we wait for its fulfillment, a fulfillment that comes not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of the living God. And we need not be afraid. In our time together each week as we reflect on scripture together, we also come to a place 
of humility where we recognize the value and the power in truth-telling. Speaking to God the truth about ourselves that he already knows. <laughs> Agreeing with God about our own frailty and brokenness and vulnerability. And sometimes we call this confession. And so today, shall we pray this prayer of truth-telling and confession together? Saving God, we are your people, yet the world cannot see this. We are your children and fail to live in peace. We are your voices and choose to be silent. We are your hands and feet and walk a different road. Forgive us for ignoring your love, for brushing aside your hand and trusting our own wisdom. Enable us to worship you in spirit and in truth, to bring to you our joyful songs in the everyday moments of our lives, that your name might be glorified through our words and lives. Amen. And now, may the Lord enrich us with his grace and nourish us with his blessing. The Lord defend us from trouble and keep us from all evil. The Lord receives our prayers and absolves us from our offenses. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.